Okay, here we are. This is the official final sermon from our multi-year series through the Gospel of Mark. Every single verse touched on all 16 chapters right to the end of verse 20. This is the 73rd chapter. So if you've listened all the way, kudos to you. It's been awesome. I'm going to read verses 19 to 20. Mark chapter 16 verses, sorry, 9 to 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And she went out and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, they will drink deadly poison, and it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Okay, so from a little bit of a straw poll, looking at some internet sources and people in my own life, I would say 50% of pastors think that what I'm about to do today might not be the correct or ideal course of action for a preacher, which means you didn't know you were coming to such a controversial sermon this morning. (laughs) It is very controversial. Here's the point of contention. The New Testament has been compiled from a number of documents called manuscripts, which are copies of each book or parts of each book. And the earliest manuscripts that we have dated of the Gospel of Mark and of Mark's ending to his Gospel don't include verses 9 to 20. Now, most of the manuscripts after the earliest ones do include it, but the earliest ones don't. So Bible nerds and Bible scholars, whether or not they're believers or not, the, 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 the rub is kind of this. Should we treat those verses, verses 9 to 20, as sacred scripture, as authoritatively the word of God, even though they're not in the earliest manuscripts, but they're in almost all of the later ones, or should we see them as simply an an, an addendum, an an addition that uh, might not be sinful or wrong or anything, but we shouldn't give it authoritative weight because it doesn't seem to have been part of the original revelation given to John Mark. Now, a few of the reasons why this is a point of contention. I mentioned the first one. The earliest manuscripts don't have Mark verses 9 to 20 in them. Also, it's very clear, a little bit in the English, but especially so in the Greek, if you read verses 19 and 20, it's stylistically, in terms of grammar, syntax, sentence structure, very different from the rest of Mark. It's written very clearly differently. It would be like writing a book, and on the last three pages, all of a sudden, the entire style of writing switches. There's no indication that it's a new author, but you're reading it, and you're like, 
well, this is kind of weird. It's a bit of a, like that record skip scratch where it's like, oh, this is very different. I don't understand. This doesn't seem in keeping to anything that has gone on before in terms of style. And uh, if you uh, look into the Greek, I guess there's over 15 words in Greek that are used in verses 9 to 20 that aren't used in Mark's gospel at all in any of the previous 16 chapters. So all these new words are introduced, this new stylistic form, and the earliest manuscripts don't include it, which leads most people, including myself, to understand it as a later addition, and we'll talk about why that was done, by scribes, by copyists, to kind of fill out the end of Mark's really abruptly ending gospel. And so I would argue that while we shouldn't technically probably give it authoritative weight, because I think it is very clearly a later edition, that doesn't mean that it's not helpful or that it's not profitable to teach on it, because there's actually nothing in these verses that runs counter scripture or counter to anything else that we read in the Gospels or specifically in the book of Acts. So technically, if someone wanted to split hairs and say, is the section that you're, you know, um, teaching on today, should we see it as authoritative scripture? I would say no because of these things, but still helpful to study. There's nothing here that contradicts. There's no curveball thrown in where all of a sudden Jesus says, oh, it's not a trinity, it's a quadrinity. And you're like, well, that's really strange to kind of throw that curveball in at the last moment. Nothing here contradicts the rest of the New Testament. Testament, so I think it's good for us to study this. And it's probably best to see it as a kind of epilogue to Mark's gospel. An epilogue is a piece of writing. You put it at the end of a work of literature, and it's usually used to bring closure to a piece of literary um, work. And that's clearly what this passage is designed to do. It sort of tidies up Mark's really abrupt ending in verse 8, and it very quickly fills out the rest of the details that you learn from Matthew, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. And so likely what happened is a later group of scribes, not trying to twist scripture or to do anything malicious, but they maybe thought that the ending of Mark's gospel was lost because it really ends on a cliffhanger note, and it ends kind of negatively. The women are told that Jesus is alive. They flee in fear and don't tell anybody. And scene. So later scribes might have thought, hey, if some Christians don't have access to the other Gospels, because the Bible hasn't been put together yet, you have little letters going around and parts of Gospels or parts of letters, then what if one Christian community only ever sees the Gospel of Mark and it has this abrupt ending and they never get Acts, they never get Matthew, they never get Luke, they never get John? What if they panic and be like, what, what, what happened? What was the rest of the story? So these scribes likely cobbled really quickly the Coles Notes version of other post-resurrection stories from Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, John's Gospel, and the book of Acts, and kind of said, here's really quickly the end of the story. Here's the, here's, here's, here's the epilogue that you are now a part of. So let's walk through the passage, because I want to show you very clearly, nothing in here contradicts anything in Scripture. So verse 9, Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, appears to Mary Magdalene. That's confirmed in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. Verse 10, she went out and told those who had been with Jesus, his, his, his 11, because Judas at this point has betrayed Jesus and has killed himself, and who are mourning and weeping, and that's corroborated in John 20, 18. Verse 11, when they, the disciples, heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe, they didn't believe it. That's corroborated from Luke 24, verse 11. 
Verse 12, after, afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. That's the road to Emmaus story found in Luke 24, verses 13 to 15. And when these two returned and reported it to the rest of the disciples, they didn't believe them either. That's corroborated a little bit later in uh, the 24th chapter of Luke, verses 35 to 38. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. That's Luke chapter 24, 24, verses 35 to 41, where Jesus appears before them and he says, Look, why are you troubled? Why, Why do you doubt? Why do you have doubt in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. Ghost, a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood as you see that I do. And then verse 15 to 20 is a really concise summary of Matthew 28. Jesus is giving his commission to his apostles to go and preach the gospel. And then the entire book of Acts. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these will be the signs that accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. That is kind of Matthew 28. The last a few verses in Matthew and then the entire book of Acts in about as condensed a nutshell as you could ever write. And so I want to make it very clear that there's nothing in these verses that contradicts Scripture. And even though it was a later edition, it was clearly done as a way to help Christians who wouldn't have had access to the whole New Testament or to all the Gospels to make sure they understood that they were part of a movement that didn't ultimately sputter out, that they were part of a movement that was growing and reaching the ends of the earth, and they could be confident in their faith because of these post-resurrection um, encounters with the risen Lord and in the ministry that was being done through the first apostles. Now, There's nothing that contradicts scripture in these verses. However, there's another issue with this text that causes me to kind of put it in the not inspired via the Holy Spirit category. Not incorrect in terms of the information that it conveys, but not something that should be authoritative. And that is because the language that is used, particularly in verses 17 and 18, is a little sloppy and it's very easy to misread it And therefore, it teeters on the edge for me of being potentially misleading. Scribes writing it down, wanting to create a quick summary, and there's a little turn of phrase, and and the way that it's written in the Greek makes makes it maybe sound like uh, something different than what those scribes were intending to convey. So what's verse 17 and 18? These are Jesus' words where Jesus says, These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. Here is part of the issue. If you haven't, if the wheels aren't turning and you're already experiencing some dissonance in your own experience and in the experience of when you look at Christian history. One commentator said, it's actually pretty easy in both English and Greek to read verses 17 and 18 
as though Jesus means that these signs will accompany anyone who believes and preaches the gospel. That these are signs that simply uh, that, that come into the life and manifest in the life of anyone who sincerely believes in Jesus, places their hope in Jesus. And unfortunately, this commentator said, the text does make it appear this way. And this is how the passage has been understood by many, many people. As you go about preaching the gospel, as you put your faith and you believe in Jesus, these signs, these specific ones, will immediately confirm that the faith, that your faith is genuine, or by implication, not. Because these signs will accompany those who genuinely believe. Now, this verse is a special, or these, you know, kind of these ideas, verses 17 and 18, but Jesus' commission here and his promise of, of these sign gifts um, really rise to prominence in kind of Pentecostal or charismatic circles. Um, and often, which is, I, don't know how, I don't swim much in those circles anymore, but when I did, um, some or all of these signs, usually it was just some, usually the gift of tongues or speaking in new languages, that kind of was more like the every, every Christian sign gift, but some of the other ones were in certain Pentecostal or charismatic circles, which are kind of, that's shorthand for a way of churches that really believe strongly that the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work doing signs and wonders amongst Christians today in the same way that we would read about in the book of Acts. Um, so within these traditions, it kind of becomes part of the theological framework to say these signs are to manifest in the life of a Christian who genuinely believes, who has genuine faith. And by implication, if you believe you are a Christian, but none of these signs, not even speaking in a new tongue or a new language, are manifesting in your life, then there's some kind of problem on your end. Because the implication very quickly can become, if you genuinely believed, if you were really born again, if you were authentically empowered by the Spirit of God, these signs would be showing up in your life. If they're not, I mean, you might sincerely love Jesus. You're moving through your day in life and seeking to honor him. That's great. But the fact that these aren't showing up in your life, these sign gifts point to a problem. That would be kind of the theological presupposition. Just by a show of hands, uh, for my own interest, how many people have been exposed to that kind of thinking? That there are some kinds of uh, powerful, supernatural signs that ought to be a part of your life, which bear evidence to the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Just put your hand up if that has been a part of your Christian journey. Yeah, it certainly was for my, my journey for about four or five years. And you'll know, and there's always a bit of a spectrum in some of these circles, but you'll know in some circles there is a massive emphasis placed on these sign gifts. They become really, really important, especially maybe in the 80s and 90s, the big one was speaking in tongues. That was the big one. That was the, 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 the line in the sand that separated the true spirit-filled Christian from just kind of well-intended but regular not spirit-filled Christians. And as a result, many, I believe, sincere, born-again, spirit-filled Christians lived with tremendous guilt, tremendous self-condemnation, tremendous shame and embarrassment, or fear that their faith wasn't valid, or that their faith wasn't enough. They didn't have enough of something. And they spent a lot of time and energy trying to drum it up. 
And in that kind of a um, framework, what can happen is a few things. Number one, you can just put a huge amount of effort into trying to make something happen and just get spiritually burnt out. Um, or you can collapse into self-condemnation because in realizing this isn't happening, so I guess there must be something wrong with me, or there must be something wrong with God, or God's work in my life, or I must be blocking something because other people seem to be speaking in tongues or having these signs and wonders. I don't. So I guess God's grace isn't for me. I guess I'm not really saved. I guess Christianity doesn't work for me. And I think it caused a generation of people to kind of opt out of the Christian life because they were expecting it to be something that, at least in their life, it never was. And they just carried that shame and that embarrassment for a long time. Or the third thing that can happen, and I certainly I, I fell uh, prey to this, how, how can you almost not, is that, especially as a Christian teenager or young adult, and you hear this emphasis on signs and powers, and you're like, yes, I want to be a part of this, and you're hoping it happens, and you're praying for the gift of tongues or for some kind of sign gift. You're like, yes, I want you to fill me up, Holy Spirit. It becomes very tempting to just start kind of fake it to make it in a group where all your Christian peers are babbling and lying on the ground and laughing and crying, and you're like, I, maybe if I kind of lean into that behavior a little bit, I will feel something. And then, of course, you do feel something when you allow yourself to be in those postures and states, and then you begin to convince, yeah, like, I think, I think that's God. Yeah, like, I think I can speak in tongues. Like, it's not a real language. I don't know what I'm saying, and, the, and I'm just kind of babbling, but, like, no one wants to be left out. So there can become this pressure. And it's well-intended. It's a desire to be used of God and to experience God's power. But it becomes, over time, a persona that some people feel they're showing up to church, faking it to making it. They're showing up to small group and conversations with their Christian friends. They don't feel like they have the freedom to say, I've never experienced anything like this. I know I love Jesus. I'm growing in holiness and faithfulness every day. I'm trying. I'm repenting of sin. But none of these big signs that I'm filled by the Spirit are happening in my life. There kind of becomes a culture of, it's hard to even admit that, because that's admitting to a, like, no faith or a lack of faith or insufficient faith. And it can just keep building the shame. And I think, at least in these verses particularly, that way of reading the text that Jesus is saying, these signs will accompany anyone who believes in my name for all of the rest of Christian history is completely, completely mistaken. I do not think those who believe refers to anyone who's going to come and put their faith in Jesus. And part of why we know that is from the text, which we'll talk about in a second, but it's also just from clear evidence. If Jesus promised and meant that any Christian who sincerely believes in him will manifest these sign gifts in their life, these would be the most common occurrence in the history of Christendom. They would be happening all the time as people come to faith and, and as these sign gifts are playing out. There would be, um, it would be on the front page of the news because in all the churches in the Kootenays and in BC and in Canada, people are having like powerful, like people are going to a hospital, preying on people. That person is standing up and leaving the hospital. Like, the, 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 you know, not just kind of like, oh yeah, I think I'm feeling better. Like, demonstrable miracles like we see in the book of Acts. 
people speaking new languages, like every Christian, not just once in a while, I heard this story, you would have it in your life, I would have it in my life, it would show up consistently. But unless you are in a massive state of denial, that is not reality. Which forces you into a position to say either, there's really only been a handful of genuinely spirit-filled, truly faith-filled Christians in all of Christian history, or we've read this text and other texts like them very, very wrong. And that's where I'm going to land. I think we've read this text incorrectly. The fact that for 20 centuries, millions of people have converted and have believed in Jesus and have lived lives in service of him, but none of these signs have appeared should force us to go back into the text and say, maybe we're misreading this wrong. Maybe our expectations coming out of this text are incorrect. So how do we understand these verses? Now again, this is a huge deep dive, and uh, there's, I'm going to be throwing a lot at you quickly. I encourage you to go back through the scriptures, look it up, do some research on your own, but I want to at least tell you how I think you need to understand Jesus' words here in verses 17 and 18. Here's the context of the epilogue in Mark's gospel. The first is a posture of disbelief. Mark makes it clear, sorry, the, the editors who add this in verses 11, 13, 14, make it very clear. The pattern is people came to the disciples and said Jesus is alive and they didn't believe them. What's important to note here, and this is where, I mean, the, the language is sloppy. I think the passage is making it very clear that when it's being, when um, the word disciple is being used, it's being referred to the disciples who were also apostles. Disciple is a word in the New Testament that just can be applied to anybody. It means someone who is following Jesus. If you are following Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are kind of automatically assumed to be a disciple. And sometimes the Bible talks about the 12 that Jesus selected as disciples. In fact, Mark says he called his disciples to him, and out of the disciples, he appointed 12 apostles. So there were a small group of people from among the disciples who were also apostles. And I think what's happening in Jesus' uh, promise here is he's making these promises to the disciples who were the apostles who had fallen away, the Peter, the James, and the John. So this is not a promise to any Christian, as if Jesus is shouting it from the mountaintop. The context is he's meeting with his apostles who are still fearful, who are bewildered, and he is giving them a promise so that they can transition from fear into faith and to fulfill their calling as apostles, which is to be the first emissaries, the first missionaries, the first sent ones to go and proclaim the gospel in a world that was hostile to them. So these then, in my view... When Jesus talks about the signs that are going to accompany those who believe, it's these signs will accompany, accompany those who believe among the apostles, among you, if he's speaking to a room of them. You've heard these reports. I will send you forward. I know you live in fear. I know that fear still grips your heart, but I am risen. And, and to uh, confirm that I have sent you, these signs will go with you to confirm that you have been specially designated to be a, an appointee from, uh, from Lord King Jesus himself into the world. 
And so in verse 20, when it says, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. That's a really big summation of the book of Acts. And what do you see happening in the book of Acts? The Holy Spirit coming and empowering specifically the apostles to go and preach, to go and give instructions and teachings on what now it means to live and follow Jesus in an unbelieving world. And there's all these miraculous signs that don't seem to, that seem to cluster and clump among the apostles, but aren't displayed by just anybody who comes to believe. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, apostles, I've appointed you, now go and preach in all in creation. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to encourage you, in the face of the hostility, there are going to be certain signs that only God can do that are going to accompany you, and that are going to give you authority to teach in a way that no one else has. And we see in the book of Acts, these apostles are given power over demons, power to set people free from demonic influence, to heal people, um, given power to speak in a new language so that people who are foreigners can hear the message of the good news and respond to Jesus. You, You can find all these things happening just in the life of Paul. Paul casts out demons. He speaks in new tongues. In the end of the book of Acts, he's accidentally bitten by a poisonous snake. He shakes it off into the fire. People are like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, he should be dead. And he's just carrying on like, no big deal. He has the power to lay hands on the sick, and when they're healed, and he does it repeatedly, at will, not just asking God to heal through him, he just commands it, and it happens. And then, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, and some people were like, is Paul really an apostle? Because he wasn't part of the original 12. He's, uh, he claims to be a later apostle. Is, is that, like, legit? He says, listen, in in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you in all patience with signs and wonders and mighty works, referencing himself. He says, talk is cheap. I told you that Jesus personally came to me and appointed me an apostle to the Gentiles. And when I was among you, signs happened that happened in the lives of the other apostles that confirm that I'm not making this up. There's a lot of people, again, you can talk a big game. But the works of an actual apostle were done among you. Just look at my track record. Now, for some of you that are here this morning, this is kind of like a, uh, who cares? Like, why does this matter that much? Like, here I am in the Kootenays, and I don't know, this, this sermon seems very disconnected from my life. What, who, who cares? Well, there's three reasons why it's really important to get clarity on this and why this matters. Number one, We want to avoid the expectation that these sign gifts are supposed to be normative for Christians, a regular occurrence, and that we should expect to experience experience them at all or even regularly. I think we should avoid that expectation because that is peddled by some people, and I, I I think it's a false expectation to set for Christians. Number two, we want to guard against teaching that places spiritual burdens on people who genuinely love and are seeking to serve Jesus and want to walk in the power of the Spirit, but think that that what that has to look like is these signs and wonders happening, and it's not happening, and very quickly within those church cultures develops a very two-tiered kind of Christianity. There are the Christians who've gone to the next level of spiritual gifting, and then there's the Christians who are stuck. Womp, womp. And we laugh, but if you're one of the Christians who are stuck and aren't willing to fake it to make it, that's a dark place to be in for a long time. 
because it begins to play with your mind and heart. Again, is my faith real? Is God actually at work in my life? And it can begin to lead to all kinds of spiritual anxiety and depression. And number three, it's important that we get clarity on this because we want to guard against false claims to apostleship. And for some of you in this room, that last thing is going to just roll off your, you know, roll off your back. You're going to be like, okay, I don't really know what that's referring to. But there are, there's a huge number of movements within global Christianity that are trying to you know, vaguely promote the idea that God is raising up a new generation of apostles and prophets, a new generation um, of offices in the church, meaning actual structural, like new positions that weren't really there to this point in Christian history, but now they're being renewed. And um, th- the, this, you know, very broad idea that there are new today, new prophets, new apostles, is gaining a lot of traction. And it's very, very popular. 